If you have your own story of being in a cult or a high control group, or if you've had an experience with manipulation or abuse of power you'd like to share, leave us a message on our hotline number at 513-900-2955. Or shoot us an email at trustmepod at gmail.com. Trust me. Dude, you trust me. Trust me. I'm like a smart person. Yeah, I've never lied to you. I never have lied to you. If you think that one person has all the answers, don't. Welcome to Trust Me, the podcast about cults, extreme belief, and the abuse of power from two people with no psychic ability <laughs> who've actually experienced it. I am Lola Blanc. And I am Megan Elizabeth. And today is part one of our two-part interview with Banachek. He's a mentalist and magician and host of Banachek's Mind Games live at the Stratosphere in Las Vegas. He's extremely accomplished. He's designed illusions for every magician you've ever heard of who's alive, mm-hmm. <laughs> pretty much. Today, he's going to talk to us about what mentalism is and why it looks like psychic ability but isn't, how he became interested in psychokinesis and telepathy, and how he and a friend got involved with a parapsychology research project called Project Alpha. Ooh, ooh, ooh. He's also going to tell us how he and his friend fooled the researchers into thinking they had real psychic ability, what the million dollar challenge is, and how no psychics have yet proven their ability in a scientific setting, and how you can become emotionally invested in something you know is an illusion. Hell yeah, bro. I love this episode. I'm so interested in mentalism and we've talked about it a little bit before how there are some videos where these stage performers can predict what like everyone in the audience is going to draw based on these cues that they gave them it's fascinating stuff you guys and it's relevant in my opinion because it's manipulation and it's tricks that some of the best uh, manipulators in the world use for nefarious purposes so important stuff before we get into it megan what's the cool thing that's happened to you this week I have a pretty good one this week. Um, I manipulated myself on purpose. I went to <laughs> Disneyland. Ah, uh-huh. love. It's just so fascinating how you know you're in a fake place. Like, I know it's Disneyland. <laughs> I might have said world. I went to Disneyland. And so I know this village isn't real. I know there's not actually even a room <laughs> behind the window. But I truly feel like I'm in a heavenly little village where you want to trick yourself and you can It's so weird. It's an amazing experience. I haven't been in a few years, but the last time I went, I remember seeing the Tinkerbell at night, how she flies into the air and she's illuminated and there's fireworks. And I was like, not to quote my own song, but I want to believe in the magic, y'all. Like, I, yeah. I don't think there's anything wrong with that cult. No. Not that that's a cult, you guys. But although there are some people who take Disney way too seriously. For sure. (laughs) And, you know, Disney, of course, is a cult, of course, in that. There are people who are obsessed with it and it just buys all of its competition. And, you know, it's Disney. It can be good and it can be bad. But (laughs) as far as just really knowing that something isn't real, but it looks real. So just believing it anyway is interesting. I love that. And I feel like that is a really good representation of how we've talked about narcissists. You know what I mean? Like you're looking at something. It's packaged so beautifully and you're like, I know this isn't good for me. Like, I know this isn't real. But it's so fun to think it is that I'm yep. just going like, to buy into it for a little while. You like how I'm comparing Disney to narcissists? Hey, you know what? It made sense to me. I agreed right away. 
<laughs> no, I love Disneyland. Jack and I have been talking about going. He's never been, so I'm very excited to take Oh, him. shit. You gotta go. You gotta go. You gotta go. What about you? What's the cultiest thing that happened to you this week? Uh, I wouldn't even necessarily say it's a culty thing so much as I've been really meditating on this idea of like my OCD recovery and mental health and trying to understand my own mindset and what hinders my recovery and what helps it. And I was reading about something called, um, we're going to do a like multi-part series very soon on how to think differently about trauma, which I'm very excited about. I'm so excited. Uh, I know I am too. But in doing research for that, one of the things that I was reading about was this idea that like one of the factors that makes a difference in how, how well you bounce back after like a traumatic experience I mean, there are many factors, to be clear, many factors. But one of them is that you have an internal locus of control. So people who have an external locus of control, you know, that's when you feel like you have no power over your what happens to you. It's like, oh, the environment, it, whatever. It's the world that's against me. Or it's in my case, I was like, well, I'm just like constantly being barraged by stimuli. And then my brain reacts to that. And I have no control over that. And I was falling into this hole of like, because I struggle with the idea of free will, believing that I have any like power Mm -hmm. in in my own life so now realizing that has been really interesting because i'm like okay so how do you go about rebuilding an internal locus of control when you've got all this like stuff in your brain like i do about like priming and stimuli creating responses and how that so many of the thoughts we think are original are just like coming from something we saw or whatever. Like, what is the way that I go about reclaiming that sense of power for myself? I think you just choose one. You choose a thought and it doesn't have to be 100% true because no thought is, but it's life affirming and you just go towards that. And then as it evolves, you kind of can let it go. Yeah. I mean, so it is, it does bring up a really interesting question of like, oh, so like we are essentially constructing our own realities all the time, no matter what. And like, I ha- I do have a choice between like, am I going to choose the thought that like, oh, I have no control. I'm just like, right. Brains are just random, you know, like association machines. Or do I choose the thought that like might not always be 100% true. That is that I have some control over my life. And I recognize that the latter now is like a better way to heal, a better way to recover, to move forward. But it's still really hard for me sometimes because I'm like, yeah, but I know that brains do this thing. Of course. And I yeah, know that yeah, yeah. we all think we're in control and then we're subconsciously reacting to some physical process or whatever you can have too much information (laughs) at a certain point you really can i've learned this the hard way yeah that's why you just have to choose something that you're not married to you're like i know in three years i might see this differently yeah but it is life affirming and i'm gonna go towards it and like see what happens you know because i once read this meme i read a meme you guys the whole meme (laughs) (laughs) middle and end but it said like hell is hanging out with yourself and five years ago Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. and it's just like whatever you think no matter how smart in five years you're gonna be like god i hate you you're so annoying so you know just have fun with that (laughs) i mean you're right though you do have to kind of just like make a choice yeah and and not like even if i'm fooling myself at the end of the day like it's hard you know for me i'm like but truth matters and of course truth matters but at the end of the day also like living life well and like experiencing joy really matters so like you kind of have to pick the version of the truth that makes the most sense for you which of course all of my like you know anti-indoctrination stuff is like railing against that idea but i do think that at the end of the day like 
we have to construct our realities in a way that is helpful. Wow. <laughs> Thanks, Till Swan. <laughs> Lola becomes the next Till Swan. Please kill me if I, I become I Till Swan. I won't kill you, but I will like. What are those things like? Tranquilizer dart you. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, that's I'll humane. just blow a little <laughs> like straight into your neck, and you'll pass out, and then I'll I'll help you. I don't know. I'm questioning everything. It's fine. I'll do it in public. You guys can watch my mess unfold as everyone has already. It's beautiful. <laughs> well. Maybe we uh, we see what happens because there's no other option. There is no other option, you guys. I'm going to make some choices and I'm going to hope for the best and I'm going to not obsess like OCD wants me to. Ooh, that was rhymed and I love that. Oh, thank you. I'm a songwriter. I don't know if you know that. Yeah, fuck. <laughs> All right. Whatever. Fuck it. We're going to see what happens. I can't wait to see what happens. Thank you. Same, I think. Let's see what happens in this episode with Banachek. What do you say? Okay, great. Okay, here we go. Welcome, 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 Banachek, mentalist, magician, mind reader. Thank you so much for being on the show. It's indeed my pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. Oh, my gosh. So before we were recording, Banachek reminded me that he actually helped out on a music video that I shot a few years ago called The Magic. And there's like a flame trick in that. And he supervised on that, which is so fucking cool. I can't believe that I didn't put that together. I am so excited about having you on today. I am like fascinated by mentalism. Your story in particular is so, so interesting. And the way that the manipulation all relates to cults, I just can't wait to get into it. So you currently have a show in Las Vegas called Banachek's Mind Games Live at the Stratosphere, correct? That is absolutely correct. You are the inventor of effects for David Blaine, over 200 episodes of Chris Angel's Mind Freak. You invented Penn and Teller's most famous effect, the magic bullet catch. You're a best-selling author who's performed in all 50 states and five continents. Um, You've been an award-winning documentary, An Honest Liar, and over 500 broadcast appearances, most awarded mentalist in history. He's been on Joe Rogan. He's been on every network you can think of. Hello, hello, hello. You're very accomplished in this field. This is very exciting. <laughs> well, thank you for having me on the show. I'm done now. That's it. That's great. You can't beat that. Awesome. Okay, so for people who aren't familiar with this field that you work in, can you just tell us what mentalism is? So mentalism, we're not psychics, although there are mentalists that would like you to think they're psychic. But if you use the, uh, if you use the word mentalist, it basically means you're using your five known senses to create the illusion of a sixth sense mixed with magic to simulate what psychic power would look like if it was an indeed genuine. In other words, words, we use tricks. We are not psychics, but we look like we are if we're doing our job right. Right. So as opposed to like just prop magic where you like pull a rabbit out of a hat, it seems as though you are reading people's minds. Yeah. I, I mean, in my stage show, I say Penandella, they do tricks with fish, coins and balls. Uh, Chris Angel with beautiful women, Siegfried Roy back in the day with lions and tigers. I do tricks with information in the human mind. Ooh. I like that. So, Megan, would you like to confess how you feel about this interview? I am so <laughs> nervous. <laughs> I've never why? been nervous for an interview. I don't know. I feel like I'm going to throw up. I don't know why. 
I, my suspicion yeah. is that she doesn't like feeling like people know the real me. Yeah. I'm trying. Yeah, maybe. Although are you afraid? Of, are you afraid of the real you? I mean, do you not want people to know the real you? And maybe that's too personal. Um, I mean, I, I didn't think so. Like, I, I'm a pretty open book, I thought, but maybe not. You tell me. I mean, I've, I've heard some of your podcasts and you are a pretty open book. So yeah, it's almost true. like you, you do put everything out there. Mm. Mm. But what if? But what if? But what if there's more? What I if? know. Yeah, I can't. I can't wait to get into all of this because I, I don't know what's freaking me out about it, but it's very um in my body. It's interesting. I love it. It, it. it would be worse if I was if there is such a thing a genuine psychic because then I would really know what you're thinking, right? <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> right. So I know we're on Zoom and also sure. just audio for people who are on the podcast. Can you demonstrate some mentalism on us right now? Can you do a trick on us? Let's talk for a while and I'll try something later on because I'm going to try to figure out through the interview how you might think. And I'll do something really, really simple because it's extremely difficult to do it through the airwaves like this as opposed to doing it if I was one-on-one with you. So let's save that for later on and then I will discuss that because I think then you'll have a better understanding of what's going on Mm -hmm, with the mechanics. mm -hmm. Love that. We did an interview with Bob Nygaard. Oh, yes, thank you. He, yeah, he's amazing. He is fantastic. So, yeah, we love, we and, and a very him. rich history, very rich story. And if you did a podcast with him, I will recommend everybody to go back and take a look at that because it's going to be incredible, I'm sure. Oh, freaking love that guy. I told a story on that episode about I was basically forced into doing a call with a psychic <laughs> one time because someone was like, you have to, you have to. I was like, I don't want to. And they're like, I'm paying for it. You have to. Um, and I wouldn't give them any information on the phone. And they got frustrated with me and like basically sure. didn't give me a reading. And I was like, well, the, if you were psychic, you wouldn't need cues for me. So that concept in general is what I wanted to like dive into. Yeah, basically. I, I did a thing on Nightline where I, I run the James Randi Educational Foundation Million Dollar Challenge for many years. And that's where we have a million dollars for any psychic that can demonstrate their ability on a proper scientific control. And on Nightline, we gave multiple psychics a chance to win the million dollars. And it was really interesting. One lady, what we did was we took Xerox of people's hands and uh, and she was to give a reading off the hands. And then she was to match it up with a biography that she had said, OK, these are the things I need to know that I can reveal about a person that their hands will tell. So it was things like their job, um, you know, their relationship, you know, when they were born, that kind of stuff. So we put all those things down, but we put gloves on everybody that was sitting up there. So she get no cues from like rings or things mm-hmm, like that. Right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh, she went through and at the very end, I think I don't think she got any any of them. Right. She might have got one, but I don't think she it was way below odds in the end. And her whole thing was after she did it, she said it wasn't fair because I couldn't get any feedback from the people. Uh-huh. And I'm like, wait, that's exactly what you're not supposed to be getting. Right. It's supposed to be about the lines in the hands. That's what you're supposed to be able to read. And that's how you're supposed to match it up with the person. Not because they're telling you if you're right or if you're wrong. So if you're wrong, you don't keep going down that rabbit hole. Right. I mean, I love her confidence, I have to say. Getting them all wrong and being like, I'm ready. That's pretty <laughs> impressive. Yeah. Well, she didn't know. Yeah, she didn't know until we revealed it. Yeah. Because what yeah. we did was we had everybody stand up. Take a look. If this is yours, you know, hold it up. If it's not, crumple it up. So we had that nice moment of everybody just crumpling them up and Uh. dropping them on the ground. We had another lady who was a medium and she claimed uh, that she could. And we always would ask people ahead of time, is this fair for you? Is it within the realm of what you can actually do? And ahead of time, they would all say yes. And we would say, how confident are you that you're going to succeed? And they would all go like 90 or 100 percent. But they all failed. But we had one lady, like I said, she was a medium. And what she did was uh, 
she had, we had pictures of live people and one picture of a dead person. And these were all placed in envelopes and mixed up. And it was a double blind test. So even I didn't know which one was which. Mm. I laid them all out on the table and she was going to contact her spirit and go across the table and find the one that was the picture of the dead person. And keep in mind, I also called to make sure all those other people were still alive right before we did the test. <laughs> you just never know. We use famous celebrities like we use Elvis Presley, uh, you know, we, uh, you know, this Marilyn Monroe, people like that. And there was a point where she was getting it wrong. And each time she said, I know what went wrong. Let me do it again. I, I know what went wrong. I know what went wrong. And there came a point at the end when she failed miserably because she had to do multiple, uh, m- multiple times trials where she said, I know what was wrong. Elvis is bigger than life. Now that he's dead, he wants people to still think that he's alive. Oh my so god. They always that yeah, they always it. had they, they find a justification in the end, yeah. no matter what, yeah. right? For why they failed. Because we'd always say, So what do you think about your powers now? And they go, Oh, I, I still have the powers. You know, it wasn't me, it wasn't the powers. It was because of X, Y, and Z. It's because the temperature wasn't right in the room. It's because you're a skeptic. There's always a reason other than looking the actual facts themselves. Right. I tend to be the skeptical person in in whatever group that I'm in. And there'll be someone who's like, Yeah, but what about quantum physics? What about this idea of like particles behaving differently while they're being observed? What about, you know, the fact that like, maybe ghosts really do care about the energy of the room. And at that point, it's like, okay, but if we can't prove it in any way, and there's no way to test it whatsoever, and there, it is absolutely never consistent, then what does it actually mean? I don't, I don't know. Well, here's the thing. Let's, let's say a medium was real anyway, right? Yeah. You would think that that medium, if he really wants to do, do good like they say they do, you would think that he want, would want to prove to the world that this is indeed genuine. That it's, it is real. Um, come take a look at it. Let's take a look at the science of this, because it probably would better mankind as a whole to understand that kind of phenomena. Yeah. But they never, ever want to do that. And yet they always want to say, well, I'm doing good. I'm making people feel good. You know what? I can give crack to a junkie. It's going to make him feel good. Doesn't mean that it's good for him. Mm-hmm. There is a reason that people go through the grieving process. And part of that is so that you can actually stay with the living and function in the living. Because losing somebody that you love, whether it be a child or a husband or a wife, that leaves a big gaping hole and you have to work through that hole and fill it back up with living things. Oh. I had a very good friend. Um, she had a kid, uh, 10 years old, died of cancer mm. and she had two daughters and a husband and she went to a medium and that medium convinced her that she could talk to her dead son. Mm. So much so that she kept going to that medium and stopped talking to her husband and stopped talking to her kids, which is the living world, right? Which is the world that she needs to be functioning in. Mm -hmm. She almost ended up in a divorce. In the end, she came back to her senses, but uh, it, it took a lot of convincing to get her to come back to that. And it's really hard to tell somebody who wants to talk to, you know, their dead loved one. It's hard to tell them that this stuff isn't real because it just it tears on your heartstrings because yeah. they're hurting so bad and you just don't want to add to that hurt that it's really hard to tell them the truth. And that's my big thing with skepticism. Most people that come into critical thinking or skepticism that come from that kind of a world, and we can touch base on where how I came into that as well at some point because I once believed in these type of phenomena. But people that come from that world and have this epiphany for whatever reason, it's a fact or something just hits them, they start thinking that they're much smarter than the other people that still believe. Mm -hmm. And they tend to forget that, hey, I was in that situation as well. doesn't mean I was stupid. It just means I was wrong about that particular thing. And so what they do is they start attacking believers 
and their beliefs and treat them like they're idiots and like they're stupid. Rather, it's better to have a conversation with people and give them enough information and get them interested enough to where they want to do their own research or they start thinking about it. And you're putting that little seed in the back of their head, because if you attack them, they're going to put a wall up. And that doesn't serve anybody any purpose at all. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'm trying to remember there was a space scientist guy. He was on TV. Carl Sagan, Carl Sagan. Carl Sagan, Sagan, yes. I'm trying to remember exactly how he put it, but there was um, a thought experiment about if there's a monster in the room, but you can't see it, you can't touch it, you can't taste it, you can't prove that it's real, you can't get any, then at what point, like, what, what is the purpose of believing that there's a monster in the room? I'm, sure. I'm, I'm relaying that horribly. Um. <laughs> I, 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 kind of, I kind of agree with that, and I, I sort of don't, because there are areas in science you can't see. When we get into, you know, uh, quantum physics and things like that, there are things you can't necessarily understand and see right now, but we find ways to see those things down the line. So I don't think and that And that's it, that always... is a big argument in, like, that people yeah. use for, like, believing in psychics and stuff. Yeah. They do, but but it's interesting that they go off in those areas when actually, why don't you just stay with the, the, the subject at hand, the psychics, right? Why don't we deal with that? Because that is something that whenever anybody's uncomfortable, they change the subject or they go elsewhere to look for the proof rather than trying to look for the proof in what it is that they want you to believe in. So when you watch shows that we've all seen where these people are talking to people who are connecting to dead loved ones do you know exactly what they're doing are you like oh that's that one that's that one that's that one i can't tell you always on every show that i know that because it's it's tv and there's so much that is hidden and so much that goes on behind the scenes if i'm in the location usually i know exactly what they're doing i do the same thing in my show at the strat okay banachek's mind games live i get on stage i tell people uh, their thoughts their names uh you know numbers out of their driver's license Uh, I used to have a show called Telepathy, and Telepathy was all about my life, my life story. But the whole first half of that show was me talking about telepathy and what people believe telepathy is. I mean, Einstein had his theory, Freud had his, Marie Curie, she had hers, and the list goes on and on and on. And they all had very different theories. So I'm able to talk about those theories, and I was able to perform things uh, along the lines of what it was that I was actually speaking about. And I would close that first half with talking to people's dead relatives, which is despicable and disgusting and made me sick to do it. Mm. But there was a purpose and a reason I felt that I needed to. Oh, by the way, I was very, very careful that the information I gave was just me regurgitating information they already believed and thought back mm. to them. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't change the belief. I wouldn't change any of the facts. I wouldn't change any of that at all. I didn't want to change their thinking. And I was very careful about that, not changing their thinking about that person. I wouldn't say, oh, they forgive you or any of those things, right? Wow. And there was a reason I wanted to do that. I wanted my audience in the first half of my show to have the exact same emotional feeling and response that they would have if they went to any other psychic, because this is a thing we often get. If you start talking to them and you give them antidotes and you talk about why this stuff can't be real, they go, yeah, but there was this one psychic I went to. And they're really going off an emotional response that they had when they Mm -hmm. were with that psychic, right? Mm -hmm. So I need people to have that exact same feeling. 
so that when we came back from the second half, I would perform as if I was still a psychic. And then there comes a point when I'm talking about mediums and I say, I believe they're all scum. And I can tell you why. Now I give my background, my story, and now they're more willing to listen because they're emotionally invested mm. in what, it, what I have to say now. That's and we had a way of getting feedback from people. And the typical response was, and here's, here, this is an actual response, but there, it was pretty typical. One girl said, she said, I've talked to my mom about psychic phenomena. I don't believe and she believes. And I've actually tried to talk to her because every time we do, we get in this huge fight and we don't talk for days. Mm. But I came to your show and I sat there through the first half and I started to think my mom was right. I was like, wow, this guy can really do it. I'm sitting here. I'm watching this. We went into the lobby and my mom was like a little smug about it. See, I told you. And I didn't really have a response for her. And then in the second half, when you came out and said none of it was real, that it was all an illusion, I was like, wow. And on the way home, my mom and I had a discussion for the first time. We were actually able to talk about these things because we sort of understood where the other person was coming from. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was great. That's exactly what I want to do. I'm not trying to change people's belief systems in my show. I'm an entertainer. But I do want to give you a little bit of information. So we'll get you to think about these things a little more. Right, right. That reminds me of the dress. Is it blue or is it black? What what, what was it? Blue or blue and black or gold, gold white? Yeah. yeah. But, gray. Yeah, yeah, but some people could see it both ways. I could see both of them yeah. depending when I looked at it. And I was like, holy shit. <laughs> it really is real that people see things really this way. Anyway, very weird. <laughs> it, 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 it is, it's interesting how when we get into our own worlds, we tend to not understand where other people are coming from yeah. a lot of times. Because yeah. like some people have good memories, some people have bad memories. And if you've got a really good memory, you don't understand why this person can't remember right. somebody's name. You go immediately go, oh, you just don't care. or You're not listening. And I guarantee you, I have a bad memory. I also have dyslexia, but I have a bad memory. And I can ask somebody their their name and repeat it like four, five, six times and keep saying it over and over and over again. And then five minutes go by and I have no clue what that name is. (laughs) It doesn't mean I don't care because I do care and I do want to know it. I've tried to hold on to it, but I couldn't. But people that have good memories cannot understand that. And people that have bad memories can't understand the perspective of somebody that has a really good memory. We see things from our own little worlds a lot of time. Right. And that is why it is important to have conversations like this to see alternative (laughs) possibilities. Yeah. I want to go back to the testing of the psychics for a minute because your backstory is so interesting. So parapsychology is kind of what you were just talking about where you're testing psychics. The study of mental phenomena which are excluded from or inexplicable by orthodox scientific psychology such as hypnosis, telepathy, etc. That kind of thing. Psychic abilities. So can you tell us a little bit about how you first came to be interested in parapsychology and skepticism of it? Yeah, so uh, I've got to give you a little bit of background on me to, so you to understand where it is I was coming from at the time when I was a young kid. So I was born in England. Uh, my mom divorced when I was a year old. She remarried. We immigrated to South Africa. My mom abandoned me there when I was nine with two brothers a year and three years old. Mm-hmm. Pretty, We had an alcoholic stepfather, but he was never around. Uh, maybe we saw him on Sundays. Um, and I pretty much raised my brothers by myself. And while I was in South Africa, when I was probably about, uh, I don't know, 13, 14 years old, there was a superhero that was coming to town. And um, he had told the world that he could bend metal with his mind. And he had convinced scientists at Stanford Research Institute, at least he said he had. Uh, And he was using that as sort of a bit of an endorsement. But he told everybody that, hey, you can do this too. Uh, I'm going to teach you how to do it in your home. So Springbok Radio was the only radio station there at the time. And they didn't even have television. So this was through the radio. 
And uh, his name was Yuri Geller. So Yuri Geller said, go get yourself a piece of metal. And I'm sitting listening to the radio. So I walked around the house. I found a little pin that my mom had left in a sewing kit. And I brought it to the radio and I concentrated on it. He said, concentrated on. And I did. And I concentrated and it bent. Or at least I thought it had bent mm. on a micro level, right? Mm. I mean, why would I not want to believe with, it, with, with the existence that I had at that time? Why would I want, would not want to have this superpower, right? Something beyond the existence I had. So I believed it had bent. Um, I left there in 1976 to find my biological dad in Australia, moved to the United States. And it was while we were in Colorado, I picked up a book by James the Amazing Randy. And it was called The Truth About Yuri Gallup. And as I read the book, the truth, as Randy said, was that Gallo was nothing more than a magician posing as a psychic. Now, keep in mind, when I was in South Africa, any adults I did know, they believed in Gallo. So I automatically believed in him as well. Right. So when I was reading the book, I got quite upset, not at them. And uh, I, I got upset at myself because I quickly realized just because people are in a position of authority doesn't make them an authority on a subject. Right. And, and, and I took it that they had believed, so it had to be real. In the book, it mentioned a method for bending a nail and a key. And so I started doing those, but I started creating my own methods. And then I started creating methods for bending silverware. So much so that when I was in high school uh, in Pennsylvania, uh, all the kids were stealing all the, the, the cutlery from the cafeteria, bringing it to me. And I got suspended <laughs> for that. And it went to plastic wear until I graduated. I figured a way to make the school bell go off early. And I told everybody I was going to make the school bell go off early using psychic powers during the day so we can get out of school early. I got in trouble for that, too. I was just shorting wires. But then I wrote Brandy a letter. And I said, look, if you ever need a kid to convince scientists that this stuff is real, I would be happy to. Now, keep in mind, you got to look at the culture back then. This is the late 1970s. Uh, and going into the 1980s. Psychic powers were all the thing. That's when pyramid powers started coming out. You put a razor blade under a little pyramid and it would sharpen. Gallo was the rage. You had all this stuff coming out from behind the Iron Curtain over there from Russia uh, with about their psychics. Um, you had In Search Of, which was the number one rated show that was on television at the, at the time with Leonard Nimoy. Uh, and, and, 70, and so, like late 70s? It was 70s. Yeah, late okay. 70s. Yeah. Yeah. So everybody was truly believing this stuff. Now, there was no evidence of ESP on a proper scientific control. And scientists lamented that the only reason why was because of the lack of funding. Well, even at that young age, it was my contention had nothing to do with funding. It had to do that they believed in this stuff and they were going in and rather than trying to find out if it was real, they're going to be documenting their own beliefs. So their own biases were going to be getting in the way. Right. And also because they had PhDs, they thought they were too smart to be fooled. When I went to go see Randy, uh, Randy didn't show me anything, by the way. He just wanted to meet me and find out about my personality. And I found out years later, the reason being is he, if this ever came about, he wanted to be able to tell scientists that, hey, I didn't teach this kid. Can you imagine if I had taught him what he could have got away with? And I think back now, and I think Randy was a pure magician. Had Randy have taught me, I probably would have looked more like a magician than a psychic. Because I didn't know there was a subcategory of magic at the time called mentalism. I just knew that there were people conning people using tricks. That's all that I knew. So that's why I was creating my own tricks to fool people. Um, I went back home. And then it was in 1979. Uh, there was an Associated Press article that came out. And uh, it said that uh, Washington University was looking for kids that could bend metal with their mind. Well, that was right up my alley. So I wrote them a letter. <laughs> they accepted me. Uh, they wanted to meet with me. And then I got a phone call from Randy a couple of days later. And Randy uh, said, hey, there's this guy, you know, in St. Louis. He's been given a half a million dollars to study psychic phenomena. I said, think of his initials. 
And I said, does it start with a P? And it's a second initial P. He said, you know already. I said, yes, I've already <laughs> been accepted. And at that time, he told me about another kid uh, by the name of Mike Edwards. And Mike had already been there. Mike had bent keys for them, but he was also a magician. And he had called Randy. And uh, Randy, I said, well, what do you know about this kid? He says, well, I don't know anything. And uh, Mike had asked him about me as well. And he says, well, I don't know a lot about Manichek. By the time it was Steve Shaw. So for four years, Mike, and there's a lot of interesting stories we can go down if you want to get there at some mm-hmm. point. Um, but we went, we went there. And for four years, we convinced the scientists we were indeed genuine psychics. Only to come out in the very end, explain it was a hoax. We ended up in every psychology magazine around the world. In fact, every newspaper around the world wow. and every psychology book in, in every university at the very beginning of, uh, of, of uh, in the psychology textbooks, any, any section that was on parapsychology. So it changed the face of parapsychology forever. So this is called Project Alpha, right? Yes. Yep. So what were some of the abilities besides spoon bending that you convinced people that you guys had? Well, I never said no to anything. And they wanted to expand our abilities to find out what other abilities we might have besides bending metal, right? So they would do things like they might take pictures. We talked about pictures earlier on, and they put them in envelopes. And then they would sit me in a room all by myself, and they would give me one envelope. And they would show me slides of different pictures. And then I would walk out and I would say, I think it's slide number three that happens to be in this envelope. And they would open it up and I was hitting way above average. I wasn't perfect every time because that would be suspect, right? Mm-hmm. So I made sure I was just way above average and, and, and it, 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 it meant something to them. And I found out, so let me let me go back just a little bit. As I said, I never said no to anything. And Mike, who was a law student, was a little bit more conservative than I was. Mike and I, we had a cue that if we ever wanted to speak, we would tap each other's foot under the table and say, hey, you want to go get a drink? Because the Coke machines were outside way down the hallway in a vending, uh, vending container. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, one time they actually put a, uh, a rotor on, a, on a, uh, a needle under a bell jar. And they said, can you concentrate and make it move to the left? And I'm concentrating. I said, I think so. Next thing you know, it's spinning to the left. They say, can you make it spin to the right so people don't think it's air currents? I have it spinning to the right. And uh, Mike taps me under the table and says, you want to go get a drink? I go, no, because I know exactly what he wants. <laughs> and they said, do you want to go get a drink? Digs his foot into mine. We go down the hallway. He says, how did you do it? I said, you know, Mike. We've been here and we keep coming, you know, and it's been like a couple of years now. I just found out I'm a genuine psychic. Oh, my like, gosh. No, no, how did you do it? So I, said, I told him exactly what I did. We went back in the room and he was doing it a few seconds later. And that happened a lot with these different experiments that uh, Mike would be doing it shortly after me. And same thing with the envelopes. So I'll tell you how we did the envelopes. Yay. Um <laughs> Yeah. So what we did was uh, I I found out that I was in the room. I'm all by myself. I have an envelope that's stapled shut and there's a picture in it. Hold out to the light. You can't see anything. And I'm sitting there and I can sit there for as long as I want and just watch the slides over and over. When I'm done, I'm going to come out and give them the envelope. They're not even watching me in that room. Mm. So what I did was I pried out all the staples, put them in an ashtray, open it up, just peek, put it back in, closed it, push all the staples back through and close the staples. (laughs) Oh, my God. I told Mike this is what I was doing. So next thing you know, Mike's able to do it. There was a problem, though, because Mike went into the room and he pulled out the staples and he put them on the arm of the chair, but not in an ashtray. I forgot to tell him that. I just told him I was pulling the staples out. He goes, he looks, he sees what it is, but he bumps the arm of the chair and he cannot find all the staples. Oh. <laughs> so he pushes them in. So he's missing like two or three staples at the end. 
So he comes back into the room and he thinks fast. He calls it, but he miscalls it because it doesn't really bring any heat to the picture. And he starts to tear it open. They're like, no, 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 you can't open it. And they tear it open the rest of the way. But that was one of the one of the things. Most of the things we did were that simple. Were they so mad at you? Uh, at the very end, I don't know if they were mad as much as being hurt. I mean, oh. let's keep in mind, Mike and I went in thinking we were going to be the knights in shining armor, right? And they were the enemy. That's how we saw it. They were the enemy and, you know, they were promoting this stuff. And, you know, these were bad people. Once we got in there, we realized these are really good people. They have good hearts. Yeah. Um, they were just very naive about this one era. So much so that even when we first went in, Randy sent them 11 caveats of things you should and should not do. Don't let the subjects control the experiments. Um, mark everything on a micro macro level. And there was this whole list of different things. They showed Mike and I that list when we first came in and said, this came from this guy by the name of James Randy. We acted like we didn't know who he was. And they had a good laugh about the list. They said, this would make you so uncomfortable. And they threw the list away. Oh my God. Had they have followed everything on that list, we wouldn't have got away with anything, but they wanted to make us comfortable so they could document what they already believed in. That's and one of the very first experiments was they had silverware, cutlery, and they would mark it on a micro, they didn't mark it on a micro or macro level, they marked it on a macro level. And the way they did it was they had little tags with numbers on them. And they probably had 20, 25 different pieces of cutlery. And uh, they'd be all different shapes, all different sizes. So the measurements are all different. So at one point, I would pick up a spoon and I would concentrate it and go, you know, this tag's in my way. Do you mind if I take it off? I'm now controlling the experiment, which mm -hmm. Randy said, don't let them do that. Mm -hmm. I take it off. I put it on the table. I concentrate. Nothing happens. I put it down. Randy also said, don't let them work with more than one item at a time. But I pick up another four, baby. I concentrate, take the tag off, concentrate some more, but I switch the tags around, put them back on the table. About an hour goes by of working with these. I know which numbers those are. I pick one of them up. I say, can you go ahead and measure this? I feel like something happened. They measure it. And of course, the dimensions are now different. And to them, that was evidence of psychic phenomena that I had bent that fort on a micro level. Later on, we started doing more macro bends. But keep in mind, at the beginning, Mike and I did not know what we were getting into. We didn't know if there were going to be hidden cameras uh, or if they were going to say they're turning a camera off and it wasn't off and it would actually be on. We had no clue. So we were very, very careful in the beginning about how big of a bend we, we caused. Mm. That idea of, oh, well, the person with the power has to be comfortable is where it starts to get into hairy territory, I think, because at that point, I love this idea that you're letting them control the experiment. When we look at some of these spiritual leaders, which I want to put in quotes because some of them are just pure charlatans. Some of them yeah. may, may, may be genuinely teaching meditation or something. But so much of it is about just like the atmosphere and the environment, and they're completely in control of what's happening because they have to be in a certain mental space in order for it to work but also like that is not exactly a scientific procedure for like i wouldn't look to those scenarios for real evidence of somebody's power right if they're completely yeah. in control of all of the factors there was a bbc producer that came to the united states towards the end of project alpha and um he wrote randy a letter he said what would convince you this is real so randy gave him the exact same 11 caveats now it was me it was mike and there was another kid from japan by the name of masawaki kyoto now, Masawaki Kyoto had a way to twist the spoon, and he would wait till nobody's looking, and he would have a gimmick in his shoe, and it would go under the table, and he would give it a twist, and then he would bring it out, and then he would reveal it very slowly that it was twisting. Um, 
This producer followed every role of Randy's during the shooting and absolutely nothing happened. Now, keep in mind, this guy was a true believer. Once the cameras went off, Masawaki Kyoto, the Japanese kid who I didn't know, um, he just happened to be at the same conference. He twisted a sprue and made it twist. The BBC producer had a complete mental breakdown. Now, at the time, when we first went into this, Mike and I thought, okay, it's not harmful. It's not really hurting anybody. We're not going to hurt anybody. But he had a complete mental breakdown. He started screaming and shouting that Randy was the devil. Randy was evil. If it wasn't for Randy, wow. had he not listened to Randy, he would have got that on tape. Wow. Mm. He had such a mental breakdown that, and um, I've heard your podcast, so I think it's okay for me to say this. Um, a white a, a stain appeared on the front of his pants. He looked down and said he had, he said it, his own words, a demonic ejaculation. I had to spend, I had to spend the night with his assistant because he was calling her all night, ranting and raving to her how evil Randy was. And he should never listen to Randy. And it was at that point that Mike and I, who were, were young, you know, we're still kids. And it scared us because we realized, you know, hey, people nowadays will take a look at metal bending and go, oh, it's just, you know, it's just metal bending. It's not a big deal. But people were very much invested in this power, mm. in having those abilities and those abilities actually being real. Same as when we take a look back now and we go look at spirit cabinets, right? But back in the day of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle and those people, the spirit cabinet, that was the proof they had looking looking for, the physical proof they had been looking for all those years that mm. these spirits actually existed. When in reality, it's cabinet. nothing more than a rope tie. A spirit cabinet is where a medium is tied down. Uh, either to a chair or in a cabinet. Um, nowadays, we tend to do uh, imitations of them. And the medium would actually be tied down to a chair. And uh, there'll be tambourines put into the cabinet. Uh, and these are usually cloth cabinets now that can open with a curtain and close. And there would be musical instruments put in there. And then what, and, and what would happen was the cabinet would be closed. Tambourines would make their noise. Sometimes they would fly over the top. Musical instruments would play. They'd quickly open it up and everybody would check and the medium would still be tied up and in a trance. Mm. Sometimes uh, a curtain would be closed and you would see a hand or sometimes if it was dark enough, uh, the curtain would open. You'd see a little child standing there or a ghost standing there or ectoplasm coming out of the medium. Then it would be closed, open back up and there's nothing there anymore. So, but it was all trickery. It was all trickery, exposed many times, exposed by Houdini, Dunninger, and others through the years. It's just being a fake and a fraud. Right. Let's bring it into some cult territory here. So psychiatrist Robert J. Lifton, so he came up with this eight criteria for thought reform, which outlines exactly how indoctrination occurs. The second of the eight criteria is called mystical manipulation, which is basically exactly what it sounds like. I found this on the internet to describe it. It is the manipulation of experiences that appears spontaneous, but is in fact planned and orchestrated by the group or its leaders to demonstrate divine authority, spiritual advancement, or some exceptional talent or insight that sets the leader and or group apart from humanity. Coincidences and happenstance oddities are interpreted as omens or prophecies. Mm -hmm. So that's exactly the kind of thing that we're talking about right here. Yeah. What were you going to say? Yeah. So it's interesting you say that because the very first thing I ever did for the scientists was something along those lines that I was setting up that would appear to be spontaneous later. There's a thing called spontaneous PK. It's basically PK stands for psychokinesis. 
And it's the idea of this, almost poltergeist-like, right? Where a psychic in a room sometimes will have these bursts of energies and things will just happen around them. Mm. Now, as the psychic, you're actually using that, and I'm going to put myself in that position for right now because that's the part that I was playing, a psychic. You're using that to convince them that your abilities are real. And in that situation, it was so that they would think someday I'm going to get that on film. Someday that's going to happen right in front of me and I'm actually going to see it happen as opposed to finding it. So when Mike and I first met at the airport, we met because we both got off our planes a little bit before Peter Popoff, Peter Popoff, Peter, Peter Popoff's another one. That's the evangelist. We can go down that rabbit hole in a bit. Mm-hmm. But uh, Peter Phillips, okay, I kind of feel like Superman when I talk about this. Lewis Lang and Lana, the two L's, right? Yeah. So, um, uh, so we get off the plane and Mike and I knew right away we we're going to hit it off. Now, we rented a car and for some reason, uh, Mike couldn't ride, drive the rental car. Neither could I. I think it might have been something to do with our age. So we were we were driving Peter's car and following him in the rental car. And as we're doing that, I look in the back seat and I happen to see that there's a briefcase back there. So I slide it over into the front below the dash. It's locked. I'm going, oh, if something's locked, that means they don't want you in it. So I picked it. It was a cheap briefcase. Open it up, and there's all this cutlery in there. There's forks, there's spoons. Like, oh, this must be stuff for the experiments later on. Mm. So I started bending them all up, locked it up, put it in the back. Then I reach over in the glove compartment. I look inside there, and I see a few things. I bend them up. I throw a couple of bent pennies and quarters in there as well. (laughs) Oh, Uh, my goodness. the The keys and the ignition. And Mike says, I think you've done enough damage. But the idea was that they would find these things later on, right? Mm -hmm. Like he would take his briefcase, take it in the house, put it down, take it to work where we're not even there, open it up, and they're all bent. Must be spontaneous PK. So it's that same thing that you're talking about that convinces them that this is absolutely real. and, and, And it just keeps them hanging on. Right. And I think it's so important because, like, we talk about what the steps are for making somebody become emotionally reliant on a leader of some kind. And this is such a crucial part of that process because once you've convinced someone that you have like magical powers or you're in touch with God or whatever, then you are the authority. Like if I truly believed that you, Banachek, were a mind reader, I would probably be way more likely to entrust you with my life decisions or, or if you were psychic and you could see the future. Like at that point, now you've earned my trust and that's when it starts to get dangerous, right? This is this is why I have a problem with some mentalists who perform and don't believe that they have to give disclaimers, right? I'm not going to tell them performers what they should do. I'll tell them what I do and why I think it's the right thing to do. I know there are going to people that people that come to my show, they're going to believe no matter what I say, they're going to believe because that's, you know, where they're coming from. They're going to be a group of skeptics going to come, not going to believe no matter what I say. But there's a large group of people that come that are in the middle. They've never seen a mental performer. They've never seen a mentalist, a mind reader. So I become the authoritative figure on that stage. If they have no explanation, whatever explanation I'm giving or presenting is what they're going to walk away with. Now, in order for me to make it look like I'm duplicating psychic phenomena, within the moments of doing these demonstrations, I have to make it look real. But I have a responsibility to remind them, hey, I'm not a psychic. You know, hey, I'm not an expert at body language. I use tricks and I use tricks of the human mind and you have a mystery to solve. 
So that's that's where I'm coming from. And I think it's really important to remind people of that because my job is simply to entertain, not to change your belief system while you're in there. All right, everybody, that is part one. Stay tuned next week for part two. We get into so much more stuff. Uh, So, Megan. Yes. You know, Banachek is not a cult, obviously, although we love him. If you were someone working at Project Alpha Mm -hmm. and you witnessed these two boys behaving in ways that seemed kind of psychic and you're maybe not necessarily necessarily like rigorously utilizing the scientific method but that doesn't sound like me vaguely (laughs) do you think that do you think that you would buy it do you think you'd buy it of course go on um yeah they'd be like oh i'm psychic and i'd be like you definitely are and then they would (laughs) and then you know once they proved one thing although i i have to say i am also very a suspicious person who is Almost funnily, always the one who's like catches things. So maybe, maybe there you are. Yeah, it's so weird. I did not know this about you. No, it's like it's like I'm just staring with pinwheels in my head, and then suddenly, like something will stand out, and people will be like, "Oh my god, you're right." So great skill. Yeah, maybe I'd notice it. I don't know. Uh, yeah, I mean, I have no idea if I would. I think it would depend on how well versed I was in like what counts as reliable research and what factors to account for, you know? Well, I mean, I will say just to kind of tie it back into going to Disneyland and that it's interesting too to know something's not real, but it still feels so real. You know, I know he's doing a magic trick now, Mm -hmm. but it still feels like magic. It still feels magical. Yeah. Oh my God. I mean, that's so cool. That that. It's not, but it feels that way. So I don't know. That's just a kind of separate observation as a helicopter lands on my house. But um, that, yeah. <laughs> what did you do, Megan? <laughs> I did it. I mean, I'm just always really fascinated by uh, mystical manipulation, which is one of Robert J. Lifton's whatever. I think I've mentioned it earlier in the episode. But we all want to feel magic. We all want to believe that. You know, when I was yeah. 16 years old and doing a fucking seance with my three dude friends and we said, if there's a ghost here, show yourself. And then the CD player opened. It was like the best moment of my entire life. Right. And it was so exciting. And then my friend holds up a remote red face and he's like, sorry, guys. And then it was like, I crashed so hard. But I wanted I wanted that to be real so badly because like that would prove. I mean, a world without magic. Boring. That sucks. You know, boring. Boring. Yeah. 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 Hmm. Yeah. Well, anyway, guys, more interesting conversation next week. Mm-hmm. We can't wait to talk to you then. Remember this week to follow your gut, watch out for red flags, and never, never ever trust me. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.